Hello, and welcome to the show Gold Squadron Gays. It's the podcast where two Star Wars loving gays break down each episode of their favorite Star Wars TV shows while also being gay as hell. I'm your host, Bradley Brower. I'm your other host, Charles Rogers, and like the axe, I forgot we were recording this episode. <laughs> Before we dive into too much, uh, just as an FYI for people, Bradley is working in like a tourist trap apparently and has like a luau going on in the background i guess so if if his sound is a little wonky it's no iphone on the floor of my closet but stick with us we're we're gonna make do you feature a lot in my early notes today bradley i personally feature you personally things you have said but we'll get there uh, real fast things before we begin the discussion of this week's Andor. Thing number one is For Light and Dice, the High Republic era Star Wars TTRPG actual play podcast that I am on, DM'd by Chris from Dark Side Divas, uh, in which I play with Hope Molinex, our friend over at J Guys and Jedi, Jess from Repalps Pod Race, and two lovely folks named Nathan and Colton. Uh, those episodes are out. You can go to for Light and Dice, wherever you get your podcast, look up for Light and Dice and listen to me play a very, very over it Duros, who's just so tired of this shit. Bradley has to mute, uh, but I promise you he was laughing when I did that. Our second uh, thing that we need to address. So the Easter eggs in Luthen's gallery. Bradley, do you remember all the ones we went over? Um, You went over quite a few. So, I mean, I'm not going to remember every single one, but I, I remember like five or six. Well, I missed some. So get ready for more. Uh, two that I wanted to point out are in the background of the, the main part of the gallery. There's two that I miss. You can see a Wookiee helmet from Revenge of the Sith. And you can also see what people have been saying is a calicory and certainly looks like a calicory i don't think it is because when i looked at it it looked more like an artistic representation of a calicory than an actual calicory because an actual calicory you're supposed to add stuff to it and that looks like a jewelry piece to me but i don't know maybe we might be looking at different things oh well uh i did also happen to run across this no other reason than I'm on a Song of Ice and Fire kick right now. Uh, but I did happen to run across uh, some information. Do you remember last time, Bradley, we talked about uh, Deidre Miro's actress and how she was in a Game of Thrones spinoff pilot? And I was yes. like, oh, I bet that's a Long Night one. Uh, yeah, I, I confirmed that it was, in fact, the Long Night pilot. It was called Blood Moon, apparently, was the Whoa, name of the pilot. I guess they were really uh, in on Fire and Blood and they were just like, ah, well, we'll call that something else. And then we'll call this one Blood Moon or something. Yeah, Blood Moon didn't get picked up, I guess, because it was it was kind of too out there and too different. And I guess George Martin thought they were going too far back. There were a number of reasons it didn't get. Probably, probably because it was too dark is why they uh, didn't pick it up. Uh-huh. You know, Bradley, have you been watching House of the Dragon? Yes, I have. So you know that the latest episode gets way darker than anything else. That's a dark episode. Look, guys, we need to, like, stop this. Uh, yes. Is the director of the episode the same director of The Long Night? Yes. Yes. 
is this a filter that he put on because of artistic reasons? Yes. Yes. Was it a good artistic reason? And does he want to listen to critique? No. So you know what? Absolutely the fuck not. Whether or not we like it, he he did it the way he wanted to. And yes, we're probably supposed to watch this in like 1080p IMAX, blah, 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 blah. But you know what? That's fine because we all have our shitty little tiny ass TVs that were screens or watching HBO Max on. It's terrible. So. Well, I miss like what was supposed to be one of the like apex emotional moments of like the first season. I won't spoil it, but it's like supposed to be this big moment of catharsis for the characters. Could not see a thing because I watched it at eight o'clock in the morning and the sun was shining directly on my blinds, which were closed. And I can see the TV well enough when it's normally lit. I can see Andor in the morning. I can see Rings of Power when I watch it in the morning with the blinds like that. House of the Dragon, it's a 50-50 shot of I'm going to be able to see. I mean, I literally watched it at night on Sunday and it was like I turned off all like normally I have like ambient lighting like around like, you know, you can change the colors and stuff. And I usually change like the background of the TV like to red or something when I watch House of the Dragon. And I had to turn every single light off in my house and my cell phone just so that I could see this damn episode. It was so frustrating. It was absurd. It was absolutely fucking absurd. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was a taste of what would have happened if Bradley and I decided to do a Game of Thrones podcast. Uh, Unfortunately, we did just teach Bradley how to read and he's not ready for Song of Ice and Fire yet. Yeah, no. I don't You're think not so. there. Not. I'm not going to be there for quite a while. We'll get what we're, we're making progress. Although speaking of you, Bradley, uh, so we don't have a thing Charles fucked up, but we do have a thing that Bradley fucked up that Charles noticed on the edit. Uh oh, what did I do? You stated you invented the Star Wars trifecta last episode, which is to say someone who has portrayed the same character in a live action film, animated TV show, and a live action TV show that they have played the same character three times in those okay. three mediums and you stated that Ming-Na Wen had done this Ming-Na Wen has not done this because Ming-Na Wen has not appeared in a Star Wars film as fin- a live action movie-ish Phoenix show oh that's right there so are wait, only, I did fuck that up yeah there are right. only two people in all of Star Wars I believe currently that have the Star Wars trifecta and that is Genevieve O'Reilly as Mon Mothma and later on in the series Forrest Whitaker will get it as he's played Saul Guerrero in Rebels really? Rogue One okay. and now he's played him in Andor yeah. and he gets a, a like quadruple point because he also played Saul Guerrero in Jedi Fallen Order well that's my bad I got so excited with Ming-Na Wen I was just like you know what she's done everything we have, we have finally found the thing that Ming Na Wen has not done. I will say though um, you did get something right because it, remember we were discussing like whether or not Mon Mothma's marriage is like a political thing. Uh, so we do have an answer uh, and and you were pretty much right on the money when you said it was like somewhat of a political marriage. We don't okay. know the details. It's not described as a political marriage uh, but it was described in interviews as quote somewhat a political marriage. So most people kind of falling along the lines is nobody forced her to do it but she really didn't have a choice so congratulations on on calling that before me well done all right that was everything uh that i needed to take care of before the episode featuring some uh targaryen discussion i don't know i'm throwing out potential game of thrones podcast names with titles gay <laughs> and get 
We're going to have to... Look, Gay of Thrones was already taken. They did a Gay of Thrones podcast for season eight, which is why no one remembers the Gay of Thrones podcast. Wasn't that also a... It was a short on uh, Amazon. It was called Gay of Thrones, and it was uh, Jonathan Van Ness from uh, Queer Eye. I thought that was a pod... Oh, no, you're right. It was a short. It wasn't a podcast. See, everything's fucking podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. He had like a little mini-series or something. Yeah, he did like a little after show called Gay of Thrones. Jonathan Van Ness, is there is there anything that Jonathan Van Ness will say no to, like as a brand deal? Because I swear it's like billboards, it's like all over the place here in in West Hollywood. They are just plastered everywhere, promoting everything you can possibly imagine. Good for them. I mean, look, if it makes money, it makes money. Bradley, you want to take us into the episode? Absolutely. So this week, we're going to be discussing Andor, episode five, The Acts Forget. Cassian must carefully navigate the distrust inherent in being the new member of a secret operation. Charles, what's one thing you liked and one thing you did not? Uh, So one thing I liked about this episode, and I had it noted down later, but I, I will just address it here is they're doing something interesting with the heist rule where they showed us the plan in the last episode and rather than jump directly into the plan they are now taking great pains before the heist plays out to show us all of the pieces on the board we see the dam we see the old temple we see the lead up and approach to it we see the place where the ship is on the railing inside we have a specific scene where we talk about the railing and the weight distribution of the shuttle. Like they are meticulously setting up everything we will need to know so that when the action starts, it'll be action, 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 action. Which is super interesting to me because I don't know if they're putting enough time between the explanation of the plan and the execution of the plan to be able to determine at what point the plan is going to go off the rails because they are showing us them practicing it. And I think that's fascinating to watch and speculate like, oh, are they going to be able to successfully walk up, march up to the thing? What's going to go potentially go wrong here? Okay, what's going on with this lever? Like, is that going to be a Chekhov's gun? Like, what's happening with that? So I do like how this episode is interesting in terms of how this heist is set up for a TV structure in a way that's not it's not normally set up in either film or other TV shows. Uh, one thing I didn't like is the middle episode syndrome is back. That yeah. uh, there is a nice emotional art with uh, the Skeen's character. I think Skeen is the character's name. Let me check. Yep. With Skeen's character kind of going through this journey and then Cassian kind of has his first little rebel leader moment, uh, which I did like. But for the most part, this episode felt a lot like maneuvering the pieces into place. And I feel like it'll be a lot better when it pays off, uh, but it has not paid off yet. And so right now this episode is sort of dangling there. Like we'll get to the Mon Mothma scene when we get to them but hers especially I felt really it was setting up elements and moving Perrin and Mon into place so what about you Bradley one thing you liked and one thing you did not um, I have to agree with you on the didn't like it yeah you're you're right this this episode was the middle stepchild like it just did not it didn't like to be where it was um, and like we said before in previous episodes when we go back and watch these later on it's not gonna feel this way it's not gonna feel like we're stuck in the middle of the week waiting for the next thing to happen because you'll just be able to watch it immediately right after kind of like what we did with the pilot episode um you know the middle episode felt like a hump but because you were able to watch the third episode right after it it wasn't that bad now because we are in that weekly time frame it's 
really, really hard to get like a sense of the whole entire thing because the episode will just abruptly end or it'll just randomly just stop. And you're just like, okay, what's going on? I don't like this. So I definitely agree with you. I didn't care for the, the middle hump syndrome, but it just, it, it was there. Um, one thing I liked actually were every scene on Coruscant. <laughs> every, all all every three Coruscant scenes scene. on Coruscant. All three scenes on Coruscant were fantastic. Um, there's just something about Coruscant that I just want a whole show that just takes place on Coruscant. It's it's so fascinating to me, the whole entire planet. But more fascinating was, I love the, we'll talk about it in just a second, but the Cyril and his mom scenes. Oh, genius, I keep forgetting genius. Cyril scenes are actually on Coruscant too. Yes. Genius. So there's, sorry, there's, five scenes on oh, Coruscant. Okay, there you go. But the the Cyril and his mom stuff, love that. The Mon Mothma and her family dynamics, like dealing with political drama on one side and dealing with her family drama on the other side. Like you could not write a better character. Like I think it's just amazing. So that's the that's what I pretty much love about this one. Yeah, and I think too to it's something interesting we're seeing with some of these TV shows right now is that they seem to be written to be binged, but then are released weekly. So we're getting into something like, I was just having this discussion about Rings of Power, the Amazon Prime Lord of the Rings show, that's like, that's a show that feels like it wants its audience to watch it one episode right after another because of the way Rings of Power structures its episodes to where it focuses kind of on different groups of characters. Like there's like a like the Harfoots, for example, we'll, we'll go a whole episode without seeing them and in real time if it's coming out week to week that's two whole weeks before we see them again uh versus like an hour if we were binging it and i feel like andor has the same thing going to an extent it it kind of is written with the expectation that you will binge it in a way that the mandalorian was really not written so I think Andor is amazing now, but some of these weaker episodes are going to seem a lot stronger when we can view it in the entire context. Unlike Mandalorian, where you just plop a random episode out and watch it without knowing anything, and you'll be fine. On Coruscant, Cyril spends time with his mother, Edie. She observes that her son lacks job prospects due to the Ferex incident. Edie tells Cyril that she will contact Uncle Harlow to call a favor for him and get him a job. They are definitely changing this intro music. I can't believe you notice this every time you're you know what? they are I will give definitely it to changing it they I are will give it to you though they are incorporating it into whatever the mood of the music for the scene that immediately follows it is going to be like it's so subtle that you barely notice it but it's there like it's there all right before we dive into the the specifics of the scene bradley we promised last time to talk about uh who is playing edie karn do you want to tell us about who is playing edie karn yes so last week she showed up for a little bit but we didn't talk about her uh we'll talk about her now because she gets a lot of screen time this episode uh Catherine hunter most people would have remembered her from harry potter order of the phoenix she's a cute little old lady that's watching harry um in the movie uh she technically oh, almost, Rowling. Uh, she technically also has almost has a disney trifecta she was in a boy she was a voice of a character in the tron uprising cartoon for disney so she's close she just needs to be in a marvel thing but that's all i got on her yep she's had a, she's had a pretty interesting little career she mostly looks like she's taking little weird roles and things and she's played a lot of witches which is you know, always fun. That seems like right up rally. Yeah, no, like there are certain people who are just born to be certain roles. 
And this is the kind of role she was born to play. I I do have to say, unfortunately, Cyril sitting unemployed alone in his apartment, staring up sadly at the sign, hits a little close to home. Cyril gave us every every answer this week on to whether or not he was a homosexual because this entire scene just solidifies it for everybody. I mean, he literally goes home to his mother, which he is clearly mother boy like he, he is oh, he's a, mama's a mama's boy, boy. like he for sure oh, very is. clearly she's so overprotective of him he is a sensitive child is probably what she used to tell people um he was talented is what she probably told people and then he goes on to be a cop fuck you cyril right but what i like though is that i think i don't know if it's in this scene or the next one uh that she's in but she says something along the lines. she's like you know what i didn't think you were really ever gonna be a good cop like that was not a great so so yeah no uh it's later on uh i haven't known uh, okay. about that okay line. we'll talk about it later then it's that really line. funny though but like that's the my scene, point the scene though where he comes home and he's clearly distressed and like his family member that he's with is just sitting here nagging him the whole time of like you need to you need to sit up straight this is why you lost your job is because you slouched and i'm like someone on the writing team was working something out here i don't know what it was i don't know who yeah, it they, was they were looking at your life and they were like you know what i'm gonna write this in this character i am very fortunate that <clears throat> i've had experiences like this with friends and family members i am very lucky in that I have not had this exact experience with a parent. Uh, however, I have been in very similar conversations to this, to where you sit across from your family member and you're like, they're like, so when are you going to get another job? When are you, when are you going to like do something? And I'm like, it's been five minutes. Calm down. Uh, I do want to note, uh, there is a couple of Mailerune fruit on the table. Mailerune fruit being a, a plot point in a season one episode of Star Wars Rebels. And also you can get Mailerune juice on Batu, And it is really delicious. Ronto Roasters. Mm. Everything at Ronto Roasters is a sleigh. Everything at Ronto Roasters is a sleigh. Trust me on this. Uh, doesn't he also in this scene uh, use the blue milk or is that in the next one uh so this one he has like blue cereal yeah but the milk is also blue uh i believe it is this scene i was just like you know what disney you try this all the time and they, they always try to do it like in an extra way but this time they gone too far because they not only did they give him blue milk but they said use it in your goddamn cereal like yeah welcome to star wars bradley the food <laughs> is blue i love it anytime there's blue food in star wars love chef's kiss like everything in star wars should just be blue food there should never be real regular other food just all blue food it's blue or brown or sometimes it's like weird orangey color but mostly side note i think they need to bring back the portions muffin uh, I don't know why they haven't yet to do this in Star Wars TV, but the one where you take the packet, like Ray bought a portion, she ripped open the packet, she put it in the water, and then it puffed up into a muffin. Like, why do we not have that anymore? Okay, so we have. We saw it in episode one of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, was it in there? I totally There's an episode it. of Obi, early on in Obi-Wan Kenobi, he doesn't rip the packet, but you can see him making the same, like, bread thing that, like, rises in the pan. Oh, okay. See, I did not catch that. The, I, I need, I need I... it to be 
mine were obvious. Did, because I have watched Obi-Wan Kenobi an absurd amount of times. On Aldani, Cassian awakes in his hut to find his weapons missing. Outside, he finds Skeen has searched his weapons under orders from Vel. Skeen begins to question him and also shows the tattoos on his body and uses them to attempt to build a rapport with Cassian. So... Cassian notes that he was in detention, a youth detention, and it was this was around age 13 or so. Well, Cassian, how many lies are you going to juggle? Because I'm like, at this point now, I don't even care about figuring out if he's telling the truth or not, because I feel like he's just lying every time he speaks. Well, so it doesn't we matter. know he we know he was incarcerated because he has a rap sheet. We know for a fact he was incarcerated. Too many people have said but he has a rap sheet. Was he incarcerated when he was 13? Yes, this is the Empire, Bradley. Do you think that? Look, so here's what probably happened. All right. And I'm not 100% of this. I am not. I am not my friend Emily over in in the Divas Discord uh, at your weird Aunt Emily, who has been exhaustively making almost daily videos trying to chronicle the timeline of Cassian's life. I, Emily, I don't know how you keep doing this. I don't know why you keep doing this to yourself. It is kind of painful to watch but also kind of <laughs> beautiful to watch this like attempt to chronicle based off bits and pieces of information that like are contradictory to each other it's incredible you should you should look at at your weird Aunt Emily's TikToks to try to watch her piece together this but my thoughts are <laughs> that probably around the time that his dad was hanged Cassian got more rebellious and started going after Empire stuff so they got him they threw him into a youth detention center he stayed there for a couple of years and then they basically let him out on like a probation or like a work release and they that's when he got sent to Memben at 16. Okay so I was thinking maybe he was just still in it as he was 16 and then that was when he got out because of the that's, whole entire that's thing. what I was like, thinking is that he was in it from 13 to 16 and then they shipped him off to Memben and he was there probably before. But then he could be lying about his age. You know what? We have no idea. And you know, we probably won't know until the very end. And even then, we won't even probably know the actual fact. Oh no, because the number one rule of Andor is Cassian Andor lies. I'm waiting for the inevitable Cassian Andor supplemental book that'll come after the two seasons are over and they'll be like, well, we just have to fill in the gaps of this fill in the gap show. <laughs> well, I've I've heard some rumors that we might be getting some tie-in material. Anyway, love the line, the axe forgets, but the tree remembers. Roll credit. And that's it for this week's Gold Scotch and Gays. <laughs> Fuck you, Bradley. Run the socials. I, I love, I love whenever a movie or show. I think it's so fucking funny. Like, it's just like, oh, you got to say the title. And then it's like, oh, well, the show's over. You can't, can't keep going on. You already said the title. Bradley, it doesn't, it doesn't work for TV episodes because they always name TV episodes like after lines in the episode. I say that there's some, Cinema Sins is a poison. It is an absolute blight on media discourse. It has permanently scarred the face of being able to talk about media in a healthy way. It's fucking stupid. The people who make it should feel ashamed of themselves and they should stop making content immediately before they poison another generation of kids to think that cloaking at pedantic plot holes counts as anything close to media criticism. So another thing that we were right about on the show. So Cinta and Vel. Yes. Lesbians. I want to point out in this episode all of the evidence that we have that Cinda and Val are a couple. Number one, Skeen points over 
to Cinta and is like, she's already sharing a blanket, by the way, if that's what you're wondering. Over a shot of Vel and Cinta's like sleeping hut where yeah they have two beds but there's they're sharing a hut by themselves i'm i'm just saying i'm just saying that is one piece of evidence we'll come back to the others but uh yeah process of elimination can't be skiing because he's the one having the conversation uh nimic's like 12 um Terramin, no probably not and that's basically it vel by process of elimination yeah and also i like how last week you guys were just like oh they're sitting next to each other they're obviously lesbians and then this week it's like yes because that's how shipping works bradley <laughs> no i know but it's just funny because last week it was like there was bare minimum evidence and now it's like they're really giving it to us like hey here you go it's on a platter like it's 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 there it's real you guys weren't just making up shit the first episode shout out to uh orca and flicks from star wars resistance uh for doing the we are totally a couple but we're never going to explicitly come out and say it first at mon mothma's residence on coruscant mon has breakfast with her husband and daughter lita mothma had made arrangements for the driver to take her daughter to school lita refuses and accuses her mother of using her for her own agenda Perrin is just a dick to the driver. And like, I just we like how the... we hate the driver on every scene because he's just like, in the first time we see him, she's just like, oh yeah, uh, I, he's a new driver and I don't want to talk in front of him because he's probably he's a, a spy. spy. And then in the second episode, they're like, fuck this guy. He's the fucking driver. Well, well, what's interesting is like, Mon remembers his name and Perrin doesn't. And we will see later on in like a very intensely stressful scene that even in an intensely stressful moment, Perrin not acting here he genuinely doesn't remember the driver's name because he's that much of a dick also i think that it it's kind of a not a red flag or maybe it's a green flag that he's not totally like against mon in like a nefarious way right like he's just against her in like a dick kind of way like i think the whole thing with that guy i would say it's a yellow flag yellow flag okay it's a yellow flag it's not a hard stop yet uh but you need to break before we get into uh lita because i do feel like i need to defend lita in this scene shockingly enough do you want to tell us who's playing uh lita firtha yes she is played by bronte carmichael that's a cool name so she's been in game of thrones before wicked good name yep that shout out nina gold shout out uh game of thrones and also shout out she happened to appear in that episode uh that we were talking about earlier she was in the long night uh i again i don't really know the exact like details of what she did in the episode but the fact that she was even in that episode makes this episode even funnier well it's weird because i'm looking at the two episodes she was in come on game gay of thrones podcast you should know uh every single character in every single okay. scene in Game of Thrones. Okay, that's why. Well, because she's in The Long Night and The Bells. And I mean, those are two really weird episodes for her to be in. Uh, she plays Martha, who is a girl from, reading directly from the Game of Thrones wiki, a girl from Winterfell who works in the kitchens and secretly spying for Varys. So... Okay, do you remember so that? Random... Do you remember that scene in the bells where uh, Varys like sends a girl in to bring Daenerys like probably poisoned food, and Daenerys won't eat it, and so the girl brings it back, and Varys is like, "Okay, we'll try again tomorrow." Yeah, that's Lita, the girl. Got it. Yeah. See, uh, I've probably watched every game of. Ever- 
Thrones episode one time. So I literally just, unless there's a dragon on screen, I don't remember shit. I've only watched season eight one time. Here's the thing about this interaction with Lita, because Lita's being kind of unnecessarily cruel to Mon here. But the beauty of Dan Gilroy's writing is that Lita kind of has a point. Now, Lita doesn't know that Mon is, like, working for the Rebellion. To her, Mon only wants to spend time with her when it advances her political career because she's always working all the time. So from Lita's point of view, you have this mother figure who's already very distant, who's very busy, is like insisting that they spend time together, specifically out in public where they can be seen to the point that it's going out of the way. If I'm Lita and I'm super cynical and also... Perrin is not helping because Perrin is like, yeah, I'll totally take you to school. Like, no, you're absolutely right to think this, which is complete bullshit. But if I'm Lita, yeah, from my point of view, it really sucks to have a parent that's never there because they're constantly working and you feel like they don't have time for you. And it extra sucks when the only time they seem to want to spend with you is not because they care about you, but to advance their own interests. People really think Mon is just some sort of political social climber. Her daughter included, which is part of the tragedy here. Because it's not like Mon can just sit her daughter down and be like, actually, I'm working for a massive anti-fascist movement. Uh, so we're actually working to take down the emperor. So that's why I'm so busy all the time, is because I'm also doing stuff for that. They can't have this conversation. Yeah, it's not that I don't love you. It's just I'm trying to overthrow the government. Yes. Sorry. Look, I understand that you're important to me, but also the ideals of anti-fascism are important to me as well. Equally as important. Equally, if not more so. And it really must suck for Mon to be like, she knows she's out here enduring all of the stress in part for her daughter. And her daughter gives her no appreciation for it because she can't know. And somebody pointed out what was super interesting is that um, Lita is around the same age as Leia. And they even have a very similar name. So they've set Lita up as this kind of foil to Leia. To where in Leia, Princess of Alderaan, one of the big like plot threads that underline that book. Have you have you read that book yet, Bradley? Leia, Princess of Alderaan? No, I have not. One of the uh, underlying plot elements of that book is actually the fact that Leia does not know that Bale and Brea are involved in the rebellion. And the journey she has to go on to find that information out like, they don't tell her. She finds out. Lita is almost in the same position that Leia's in where her mom is clearly doing something. But while Leia has enough faith in her parent to go and investigate it and figure it out and ultimately join them, Lita just writes Mon off as, well, you're just a political climber. I think is super interesting. The, t- the family dynamics of this extremely fucked up family is incredibly fascinating to me. It, you know what's funny too? Is it was also giving me Veep vibes because... In, oh my like, god, 100%. A, a less comedy way, but like it was this... Like it's almost like the same dynamic if you think about it. If you, if you look at Veep and you look at this, 
And it's like, oh, wow, this is kind of the same family dynamic, except that they're still married. Um, And like, you know, you have the idiot husband and, you know, like the overstressed, overworked mom. And then you have the daughter who just cannot see anything right with the mom. Like, it's just like, it's perfect. Like, I think everything is great. The difference is that Mon Mothma is a a decent human person. um, And Selena Meyer is an awful pile of repulsive human garbage. Which is why we love her. Uh, The other thing I wanted to note, so the blocking in this scene, like where everyone is positioned in the scene is interesting because you notice where they put Perrin, you didn't, so I'm going to tell you. So traditionally when you're blocking like a family dinner scene at a long table like this, you'll put the parents in one of two places. You will put one of them at the head of the table and the other one right next to them. Or you will put them in opposite ends of the table. So you either present them as a unit or you'll present them as completely on opposite ends, either bookending it or being estranged from each other. The kids you usually will fill in everywhere else. They have placed Perrin equal to Lita. And in fact, Alistair McKenzie is slumping down in the chair to bring himself to Lita's height. Perrin is more like a kid in this dynamic than he is a supportive partner for Mon. Wow, you're really like chewing up these scenes, Charles. You're like, anything Mon Mothma appears in you, you just like, you have to break it down. Like I have to break it down to the molecule. I edit, (laughs) no, you need to understand, Bradley. I edit notes out of the Mon Mothma sections. I take my notes and then I edit some of them out because I just don't have time to get into that. Pause on this scene. Um, you never did your Mon Mothma minute, so oh I gotta, my god, I gotta give it to you now because we're since we're talking about it. Might as well Actually, do it now. we're gonna put a pen in that. Okay, we're gonna put a pen in that because I'm gonna use it a little bit later in the episode. If we're gonna put it later right, in the episode, right. there's a specific point I want to put it. I just don't want anybody to forget that our Mon Mothma minute was in this in this episode. No, it's, it's it's there. No, I just it's, don't it's want coming. to forget. It's coming. Okay. That was on me. Well, admittedly, because we were late in starting, it's extremely late for me. I just did my, I may or may not have just done my notes on this episode right before we started recording. Uh, yeah, that was on me, but we'll put them on Mothma Minute in a later scene. How about that? Um, one last thing I had uh, before you mention anything else. Uh, I forgot to mention that the actress uh, who plays the daughter, she was also in the Disney Christopher Robin movie with Ian McGregor, and she played his daughter in that movie. So I just want to throw that out there because that's just like a fun little connection um, because he's Obi-Wan Kenobi and, you know, now she's in Star Wars. So I just thought it was fun. Back on Aldani, Nemec shows Andor a navigational tool that he's been building. Nemec says that he's trying to lessen their dependence on the Imperial technology. Bell and Terraman pull Cassian into a meeting and he realizes they don't know how to get the payrolls out of the Imperial base. At the Aldani garrison base, Lieutenant Gorn yells at two other Imperial officers for not ordering their men to clear up target practice. So Nimic has an absolute fuckload to say about political theory. How old is this kid again? An absolute fuckload to say. Um, Alex Lothar, who plays Nimic, was born in 1995. So he is 26, 27. Presumably... Nemec is a little bit younger than that. I read him as being maybe in his late teens. Yeah, but why is a teenager into political movements and manifestos? Like, I just don't understand. <laughs> You're not on Twitter, are you? You're not on Twitter at all. Um, 
maybe you're on a different side of TikTok than I am too. Uh, but I promise you, teenagers get very into political movements. I guess he is like kind of the more impressionable, you know, kind of age to be into politics because he's, you know, he's like, oh yeah, the empire sucks. I hate the empire. I just, I know what we need to do, right? Because TikTok told me all the good stuff that uh, we can do. And that's, that's, that's the, his character for us. Well, well, here's the thing though, is that basically everything he says is right. And like every, every line, I wish, I wish that we had a longer podcast episode. Because literally, I I started writing down lines of mimics that I wanted to talk about. And I stopped because I realized I was just writing every single line. Everything that this man says is worth digging into with hooks and talking about. I just don't have the time to get into this. I do want to go on a little bit of a rant, though, because on Twitter... I'm, I'm not going to say what it was because it, it was another podcast account and I don't want to dunk on them too much because I've already dunked on them on Twitter, not on our podcast account, but on my personal account, uh, basically trying to claim that Nemec with his idealism is just as bad as Cyril, the cop who gets people killed. And I'm like, that huh? is the dumbest fucking, yeah. Somebody was trying to make the point that Nimic writing political theory is as dangerous as Cyril abusing his position of power to target people more vulnerable than him. I mean, all all that I see in this is that one of them grew up poor, clearly, and the other one clearly grew from privilege. That's all I see from this. Right. Well, and like it's... There's a question of like upbringing, but looking at the two of them and what they do, what it was, like what's what it seemed to be from the tweet, is that the person heard the word manifesto applied to what Nimic was writing and immediately associated it with like the only time it's used in the mainstream media outlet. It's someone with no understanding of what the word actually means, just sort of having their brains switched off by the fact that Skeen uses the word manifesto. A manifesto is just like a declaration of ideas. That's that's all it is. And yeah, every time it gets used in the media, it's in a negative context. But the word on its own just means like a declaration of ideas. It's not even necessarily political. People write manifestos for art. You know, it's it's just saying, here are my ideas on this particular subject. So to look at that and go, yeah, that's just as bad as the cop that kills people. That is incredibly dumb and just, so I just bad media literacy. I just came up with a great new podcast name for you. It's called the okay. Mon Mothma Manifesto. That's your podcast. Yes, where I deliver all of my ideas about the character of Mon Mothma. Yeah, that's it. That's all it is. That's that's all. That, what is this podcast? It's just not my extended manifesto on Mon Mothma as a character. No, I think, and that that choice of words, I think, was done very deliberately by Dan Gilroy. I think he he wanted to make a point about Nimic's idealism that Nimic is the type of guy for whom ideas are important. So for him, the greatest weapon that he has is his ideas. And putting them together is for him the same as assembling a weapon or assembling a team like or assembling any other sort of asset that you can use in your struggle against authoritarianism. Like the ideas he has, he's clearly put a lot of thought into it. So <sighs> I... That was just a very dumb take, which was ratioed to hell 
and I also wanted to mention on the airtime that I have that that is a fucking stupid take. These characters are not even remotely close to being the same level of dangerous. And both sidesism is a, a stepping stone on the path to fascism ascendant. So maybe be careful when you have your little Star Wars political and or hot takes is all I'm saying. I like the idea of to idealism, the concept of idealism versus pragmatism as, rec- as represented by Nimic and Skeen in this scene. Where Nimic is an idealist, Skeen is a hard pragmatist. And I like their, their play off each other here when they're talking. Yeah, I think what they're slowly introducing in this episode, which we'll, we'll see a little bit later on, is that everybody, the theme of the episode is everybody has their own gripes with the Empire, right? Everybody's got their own rebellion. And we're going to get more into that a little bit later on in the episode, but we're getting hints of that now. So you're going to start seeing that a little bit. Like, so you have um, Nemec, who's a little bit more of an idealist, like you said, then you have Skeen, who's kind of, you know, he's not super into it, but then you have the other characters that um will kind of get a little bit more details on it than some other characters and you know cassian brings up the thing where he says later on why would this person have anything wrong with the empire and then we'll slowly get to see like everybody kind of has their own issue and so they all approach it differently it's also the sliding scale of like ideals versus personal reasons like nemec is all ideal like he just believes in the cause that's his thing Skeen is entirely personal, does not give one wit about the rebellion. He is just out to kill Imperial. So I I love the dynamic between these two characters. I would love to see these two characters show up again somewhere. I need to know how these two met. I need to know what their deal is. I mean, uh, I, I don't want to bring up too much about Skeen in this because we'll talk about it a little bit later. But we'll talk about it later. I, I think that it's almost like he sees Nemec as a surrogate brother. I think that's kind of like their dynamic. Now that I watched the episode and I know his backstory, I feel like that's oh, yeah. kind of where he is in that relationship. Um, he sees him almost like as a, you know, a surrogate little brother. And I think he is taking him on under his wing kind of thing. And he wants him, he wants him to be a little bit more realistic when it comes to the war, but he also like wants him to succeed because he also wants to overthrow the empire. <laughs> so he wants like, you know, so he's kind of coming at it from both ways. The other, the other overarching theme of this episode is, wow, these people are, are kind of super unprepared and have like massive holes in their plan. Which we saw coming from a mile away, clearly. Wait, yeah. You know, yeah. 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 Which, which also goes to show is like, you can think you're meticulously going over everything and then suddenly you get an unstable element introduced and it's like, oh, we didn't know any of what we were supposed to do, actually, which is probably why Luthen did it come to think of it, is in interjecting Cassian in there is going to force them to reevaluate everything and find the holes in the plan, which they do. They find one in our obvious Chekhov's gun of the load clutch thing that they're going to have to do in order to get the thing off the rails and into the air. My final note for this section is that I wish to point out the space goat. It has six antlers, and I love the space goat. It is the best part of this episode. Also, uh, I love how they specifically in this, I think it's the scene where he gives them the milk um, and he's it is specifically white. And I was like, are you serious? Like, you can't have boring white milk. And then, but what I do love that they do is the second he tastes the boring white milk, he goes, mm, this is nasty. No, I don't think I need to 
drink anything that badly. Mm -mm. Well, it had to come straight from the goat, like be completely unpasteurized, which is probably vile. And well, Bell says earlier on, she was like, uh, I think it was last episode where she was talking about like, yeah, we've been sitting here eating. Or maybe it's this episode where she talks about like how they're, they're just eating whatever they can and like surviving off nothing because they're trying yep. to stay hidden for so long. Meanwhile, Cassian's getting paid like 200,000 bucks to be here. Yeah, just just 200K, like whatever. Just 200K, like it's nothing. <laughs> I lied, I do actually have one more note about this section, which is uh, I wanted to point out the corruption in the imperial bureaucracy that's mentioned almost offhand, where they're like, well, we pulled the troops to help the commandant's wife move furniture around. Which is an indicator without even showing us anything on screen. It's just a one-line indicator of just how corrupt this garrison actually is. And also just how, like, loose the security is. That the commandant's wife can just be like, yeah, y'all come up and move some furniture. It's fine. Well, I think what they what they hint at every time we go back to Lieutenant Gorn is that, there. you're right, there is no security on this. Like, because everybody here either A, doesn't want to be here, or B, they know this is such a shit job that it doesn't matter if they do their job correctly because there's no actual threats to where they are. Because all that's around them are a bunch of shepherds and native people that aren't going to do anything because exactly. they're all passive. So exactly. I just thought that was It's that beautiful, like, British Empire arrogance of, like, 10 guys in a fort being like, yeah, we can hold this entire region nobody's gonna try anything with us we're the british empire who's gonna mess with us oh uh everybody is your answer british empire but of course star wars is not political at all meanwhile on ferrix isb lieutenant blevin watches as workers clear damage caused by fighting during the ferrix incident they clear out a hotel to turn into their new headquarters the captain asked if he could be made a prefect blevin tells him to get his headquarters up and running by tomorrow did you notice they're forcing the people of Ferrix to clean up the street? Um, yeah, it's your mess. You clean it up. Yep. They we're we're not gonna expend imperial resources to clean. We're gonna spend imperial resources to walk around and guard you while you clean. Absolutely. It's, it's also like an anti-insurrection tactic, right? The idea of if you cause trouble, it's going to affect other people in your community they are going to be the ones forced to deal with it my only other note for this section is do you want to tell us who's playing captain vanistigo i did not get that information because he barely crossed my mind when i was watching i would love to tell you who is playing captain vanistigo who barely shows up but i desperately needed to talk to you about this man this man's name is wilf scolding he was in Skins. He's been in a lot of UK stuff. But the one I really wanted to talk about is, of course, he was in Game of Thrones. Do you want to take a wild guess who this gentleman played in one episode of Game of Thrones? Probably a random twink that dies in Game of Thrones. You are correct in that it is a twink that dies. However, it is not random. This man plays one of the most important characters in the backstory of the franchise. Wilf Scolding plays Rhaegar Targaryen, the Dragon Prince. Oh, is that John's daddy? John's real Snow's, daddy. 
Oh, sorry. Spoilers, spoilers. for Game of Thrones. <laughs> yes, Jon Snow's real dad. So the the prince who quote unquote abducted Lyanna Stark and began Robert's rebellion to basically dethrone that wound up dethroning the entire Targaryen dynasty. This is that dude. Cool. Good for him. Shows up in one one scene in one episode, but he's sure there. That was my only note on him. I have one tiny, tiny note, and that's what the hell is a prefect in the Empire? Because that was so random. That's from Harry Potter is all I remember from Harry Potter. And so that's why I was like, what is this? Why Why the? Why does the Empire have prefects? Anyway, I don't want to go too much into it, but I just thought it was really funny. Uh, it looks like, I'm just Googling, it looks like it, it may have some history. Ah, here we go. There is a military history wiki, which I am utterly terrified to spend too much time on. Uh, it is a magisterial title of varying definition. Uh, looks like it basically just means the the guy who is in charge. Uh, okay. It looks like it may derive mostly from the ancient Rome definition, which is like an additional title to basically say that you were assigned to this position by a higher authority and you speak for them. So he's basically saying, can I get an extra super t- special title so everyone knows my orders came directly from Coruscant? Please, Daddy Blevin. I'll be so good. Yeah, that's it was definitely the vibe I was getting. Okay, cool. Back on Aldani, Tamarin drills Clem and the other three male rebels about marching and holding blasters as Imperial soldiers. Cinta sights an approaching TIE fighter, which circles a nearby forest before swooping down and passing their camp. Lieutenant Gorn speaks with his corporal about expanded Imperial airbase. Cinta tells tends to Andor's arm, and Andor takes offense at Skeen for checking his pouch. Yeah, so Cinta and Vel sure are standing next to each other, huh? They're closer than ever. Exactly. <laughs> it's so obvious. Uh yeah, they're they're like super unprepared for this mission and having to integrate Cassian into the group has demonstrated just how unprepared this team actually is. Also, and here's what's impressive about this scene. That is one TIE fighter. In every other Star Wars thing, one TIE fighter is not that scary. Here, one TIE fighter is fucking terrifying. How do you make one TIE fighter scary? I just like that. I know that the person inside the TIE fighter is just being a dick. Like they are so bored because TIE fighters don't do anything on this planet other than just scout and stuff. And so he saw a bunch of farmers and he was like, I'm going to scare the shit out of these farmers real quick. And then he did. And then he just goes back and he's just like, eh, whatever, go back to the base. Yeah, because the Imperials are dicks. I mean, that's... That's just the way it is. The Imperials are dicks. And yeah, they'll go out and just harass the local population. Because what's the local population going to do? Fight back? No. I also love uh, Nevik's line, surprise from above is never as shocking as one from below. Uh, I feel like this will come up again later on in a film called Rogue One. I've never heard of it. Uh, it was a small indie movie from 2016. Uh, you've, you've probably never seen it. 2016 or 2017. I can't remember because it honestly doesn't occupy that much space in my brain. So did you include the scene with Lieutenant Gorn where the guy is talking to him on top of the dam in here? Great. I want to talk about the shit people say to you when they think that you share their ideological beliefs is insane. Like... I'm white. 
I'm a man, and I can be straight passing when I want to be. People in the South, the American South, have said some shit to me. And I'm like, why in God's name would you say something like that? And I've had to be in the uncomfortable position because, of course, you know, I don't want to out myself as a dirty, godless homosexual of just kind of, yeah, sure, buddy. Okay. And that was definitely the vibe I got from Gorn here. This guy, like, thinks that Gorn is full-on Imperial because he presents himself as this, like, full-on model Imperial officer. And so he's like, yeah, fuck those natives, am I right? And Gorn's like, yeah, sure, buddy, get the fuck back to work. It's so awkward, but I also love how, like, I know that awkwardness. I've been in a conversation like that before. It sucks. Elsewhere, Deidre walks past Blevin and several aides discussing plans for an upcoming conference. Later, she begins to search the Imperial ledgers for missing objects. Her assistant reassures her that they are onto something. He notices a pattern of stolen items. They deduce that the rebels are spreading out their thefts in an attempt to make their attacks appear to be random. So we get our second mention of Hosnian Prime in the series that, of course, being the planet that was destroyed by uh, Starkiller Base in The Force Awakens. Also, the planet represented in the Senate in the High Republic area er- era by one Giras Staros. I will let my fellow High Republic aficionados fill in the rest of that so as to avoid spoilers. But if you know, you know. We do love a supportive gay assistant. Yeah, did you clock that one, people? That's, did you clock that's what's going on here? Oh, we, look, we love a girl boss and her supportive gay assistant. That's the vibes. Right, because no one else is going to stay behind and work later for nothing. Like, trust. Like, they are, they're secretly friends. They just don't want to admit it to each other because that's the Empire. But they are, like, biffles. Like, they are definitely, like, best friends forever. Oh, yeah. And, like, this is how they bond, is, like, trying to, like, out-girl boss everyone else. Love it. I love I also, the vibes here. I love that he also is trying to reassure her, too. He's like, he's like, don't let the mansplain to you. Like, you know what's going on. You, you are correct. Don't let them fucking gaslight you. Like, you know that there's a rebellion forming. So don't, and don't, don't, look, don't say no. Hurt is completely right about this, too. He is right to say this to her because they are being shitty and gaslighting her. They are treating her terribly. And he's like, no, queen. No, no, go slay. (laughs) I will stay here and support you. Uh, He does mention Kessel when he's listing off all of the different things that have happened. Um, He mentions Fondor that we talked about in an earlier episode. That's a shipyard. Um, and, but he, the, it's the Kessel mention that I want to focus on. Because looking at the timeline, what happened on Kessel a couple of years ago? Specifically, a Wookiee escaped. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, several Wookiees escaped, actually, uh, as part of a giant uprising at one of the mines, during which a bunch of coaxium was stolen. They are almost certainly referencing the events of Solo, a Star Wars story. And here's the thing, too. That coaxium does end up with Saw Gerrera. Uh. It does end up in the hands of the Rebellion. So one has to wonder, how involved was Luthen in that? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Yeah, he, he must be secretly funding Saw Gerrera. Who knows? 
Oh yeah, I wonder if we'll get some uh I wonder if we'll get some like revelations on that. The trailers certainly haven't given us any indication. My final note is I desperately need to bring up the crowning jewel moment of the episode. So good that I had to go back and watch it again and make sure I wasn't like seeing something that wasn't there. Deidre fucking popping space Adderall at the end of the scene. They did say this was going to be an adult episode and nothing's more relatable. Nothing is more adult than I have to stay late on the project. Let me pop vaguely questionable stay awake drugs or like a five hour energy or something. Look, when they said the show was going to be adult, I thought it meant there would be like brothels in it. Not that like there would be working late using five hour energies. That is not what I thought this meant. On Aldani, Val and her comrades give a toast for the rebellion. The following day, they travel towards the base. Andor asks why they are relying on an imperial lieutenant. She explains that everyone has their own personal rebellion. Back on Coruscant, Edie tells her son Cyril that Uncle Harlow thought that police work didn't fit her son. At the Aldani garrison base, Lieutenant Gorn talks to his subordinate. Uh, rest in peace to Nimix Miniatures. You will be missed. Uh, I loved you so much. I like how they just burn him. They're just like, meh. Do you you want to hear a funny story from my childhood about damn miniatures? Is this a two-minute story or is this a 35-minute story? Okay, okay. Go. Go for it. So, okay. So, when I was about four or five years old, my grandparents had a book, like an encyclopedia, and one of the pages showed you how to build a model of a dam that looks exactly like the one that Nimick has in this episode. And so I was really obsessed with that book, and I'd love to open it up and look at it. And one day I went into the room to look for the book, and it wasn't there. So I walked around the house, and instead of saying, and mind you, this is a deeply conservative Christian house, and I'm like five years old. Instead of walking around the house and saying, where is the book about dams? I went around the house shouting at the top of my lungs, where is the damn book? And that's how I learned what swearing was. Okay, that was a good story. I, I, I'm that, glad, we, I'm glad I left very, it in the edit. That's a very funny story. Yes, thank you for leaving that in the edit. Uh, Gore is popping off again. I don't know how it feels like it can top itself every episode, but it is. I don't normally ever recognize the score <laughs> unless it's that one random score at the end that doesn't really fit in star wars but was pretty good which was andor just walking to the beat of drums like i don't know why that just sticks out oh it brain. kicks ass the score in this kicks ass like nicholas Bertel, you're a legend like it's so good the cyril scene explains so much about who cyril is as a person it's like it's just so like someone's family to be like nah i feel like the career path you picked really wasn't for you i don't know what is i'll have to think about that i just know what you picked was wrong so so what do we think cyril's our uncle thinks that would have been a good fit for him like what does he what does he think would have been and then what is he actually going to get him a job as is the real question so here's what here's what i think is interesting i don't think his uncle thinks anything about it i think his uncle like his mom is more interested in criticizing cyril's choices than he is actually providing any useful help because that's the kind of family cyril's in a very critical family and that's why cyril turns around and is very critical to everyone around him 
because he's going to be held to a high standard. So he now has to hold everyone else around him to the highest standard. Otherwise he looks bad. And more importantly, he feels bad because generational trauma is real. So I left in the, um, the garrison base scene, but I nothing really happened. I just, it was, Oh just no, no stuff happened in it. Stuff okay. happened in it. Specifically, I, I want to mention the way Gorn is manipulating his people here, which I find super interesting because Gorn wants them out of the room. He does not want anyone in the room. Like he wants as minimal a crew as possible on the night of the eye. So instead of being like, ah, I'm giving all of you time off, he does the exact opposite. He goes, I'm giving you time off, but oh. You guys didn't do this, so I'm going to have to put more people on. He makes the fact that the base is going to be understaffed, those other guys basically begging him. So now the record will show that Gorn wanted people there, but gee whiz, they just asked him to go out and see the eye, and good officer he is, uh, raise morale of his men, he relented. Is this the first instance of reverse psychology in Star Wars, or is this just the first time I've noticed it? I think this may be the first time you've noticed it. It has to have happened before. But yeah, works like a charm in this scene. We're seeing we're seeing in this scene too, Gorn setting up the pieces from his end for the heist to go forward. And I find it interesting the tools that he's employing of manipulation and sabotage. While the rebel band is resting, Skeen ambushes Cassian and cuts off his quaddy signet and accuses Cassian of hiding his past. Andor admits that he is a mercenary, and he says that he is only willing to take the risk with the mission because of the money. Back on Coruscant, Senator Mothma and her husband travel in an airspeeder. Perrin asks Mothma when she was planning to tell him about her new charitable foundation. So we see this, we see a Lambda-class shuttle. Uh, shout out to the Lambda-class shuttles. Love them. They're some of my favorites transporting this imperial engineer which is going to be one of our cogs in the plan next episode is the fact that the imperial engineer is there i have a theory about who this imperial engineer is okay what's your theory you know who's actually an engineer orson krennic oh it's it's not impossible that orson krennic is the engineer that has come in but what is what is he coming to do like i don't understand what he's doing he's just there to like look at it and then like go okay you guys are doing a great job and leave or like what is the issue Uh, i don't know to do orson krennic things it it might have something to do with project stardust i don't know man i'm just guessing here fast forward to next week when it's some random twink that it's gonna be some random fucking twink that's been (laughs) on game of thrones oh i feel so bad for nemec though where he's like wait Wait, you you were just in it for the money? Because remember last episode, he was like, oh, I really believe Cassian believes in the cause. Yada, yada, yada. No, I feel bad for this kid. His uh, his revolutionary dar was off. What's interesting, too, is, is we see our first glimpse in the scene of Cassian the rebel. And he's not quite there yet, but he basically gives this speech where he's he's kind of chewing them out. But if you read between the lines, what he's basically saying is, I know you're afraid. I'm afraid too. You can't let that dissuade you. You cannot focus on the fear. You have to keep moving forward. This is our first sort of moment where we see Cassian beginning to grow as the leader he's going to be by the time of Rogue One. 
And I think it's a really, really great scene and super well acted by Diego Luna. Everything Diego Luna does in the series is excellent, but this scene is particularly well acted by him. My favorite part is uh, Skeen's like, why is he wearing like a Bulgari necklace? It's like super expensive. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> Cassian's like, because I'm being fucking paid and Phil's like, God damn it. She's like, oh, you were just supposed to be quiet just for a little bit. Like we have, we were suing so good up until this point. And then you guys. Well, it also weirdly, like it, it makes me wonder about what Luthen's intent was here because it really was better for them to like, once they knew that, okay, Cassian is there because he's being paid. It seemed like there was like a release from the team, like a pressure had lifted. So we'll see how that plays into the, the finale. I do want to present here uh, evidence block number three that Vel and Senta are a couple, where at, once they find out that Cassian is a mercenary and Vel knew the whole time, everybody turns to look at Senta and Senta's like, she didn't fucking tell me. Like, why would she have told you? Yeah, why, why would why would she? Uh, why, why would everybody assume that you know Santa? Hmm. Anyway, my my underlying thesis statement here is that they are in fact a couple, uh, and I would like it explicitly confirmed on screen, please. Thank you. All right, Bradley. Here's where we'll do our Mon Mothma minute. Right at the beginning of this scene. Are you ready? I don't care. I'm starting it anyway. So. We get, like, a fucking 30-second look at this gala dress that she's wearing, and holy fucking shit. This thing is gorgeous. It's got this little jacket. It's got these gold chains in the front. She's got, like, her hair. Like, every time we've seen her hair thus far, it's, like, in this sort of work bob. But now she's got it, like, slicked back. And it's like this sweeping pattern down and it looks a lot more like we're going to see in like Return of the Jedi or again in like Rogue One and Star Wars Rebels. But it's just like beautiful ensemble with this jacket and the dress and everything. Mm, just a sleigh. Everything is a sleigh. Perrin is also there, unfortunately. And that was a solid minute of me gushing about Mon Mothma's dress. I love it. I love it. I guess that's you know what if you had to have one minute. I had to have her, one like, minute that would about be the dress. If if we're gonna pluck it and put it somewhere, we can put it there. I'm pretty sure it was exactly one minute. So can we now safely assume that next week is quote unquote our fan dinner party scene? That <laughs> God we damn it! We did about. it again. We were like, oh, the dinner party scene must be next episode. Right. So clearly, it's the next episode. So. Because the dinner party happened off screen, the one with Slymore and Ars Danger, the the party that Mon Mothma is at where she's having the conversation with the guy in the trailer, that must be a different social event. Uh, but presumably, yeah, that one's coming next episode. We're going to keep saying this until it happens. Four I mean, episodes it's gotta later. Be the ne- yeah, it's got to be the next one. I mean, it's the next one. It's got to be the next one. Or maybe it's the next one. Who knows? Gartar Feet is new. Not a guy that's been in anything before. I, this episode has really demonstrated what the underlying problem with Mon's relationships is going to be. And the underlying problem is that Mon does not tell anybody anything because she can't. She has to compartmentalize to all hell. And to the people in her life, this comes off a very poor way. Perrin is clearly very frustrated because 
Mon is just not telling him about things in her work. And he's just finding out she she started a whole charitable foundation and didn't bother to tell it. And like, yeah, he would have then turned around and said, why are you boring me with this? It's so sad and boring. But also he kind of wanted her to tell him. Like, it's a super shitty male entitlement thing. But part of the issue is she always seems like she's hiding something because she's hiding the rebellion. And because of this, everyone in her life is getting the wrong opinion of her. And she can't do anything to correct it, which is incredibly tragic. Also, uh, I didn't think you'd care because it's charitable is a hell of a burn. Um, I like that because it's not one of his fancy dinner parties. So why would he fucking care? Yeah. She's also kind of digging at him a little bit. Well, I mean, it helps people. I, I love when he he does forget the driver's name. So he has to ask. She clearly is frustrated by the fact he has to ask the driver's name. And he's like, can you take the expressway? I want to get the fuck out of this car. <laughs> I love I just everything about him is he's a, he's a pretty good character. I, I have to say, like, I think it's I, just a pretty good character. I hate him, but I hate him because he is such a good character. Approaching the Aldani Imperial base, Vel tells the group they need to get a fire up. At the dam, Lieutenant Gorn spots the rebels' fire. Skeen gives everyone his backstory and says this is as close to an apology as that he will be getting, which Andor accepts. Vel then says she will reunite with the group the following night if the mission succeeds. Tamron asks Andor if he accepts his leadership, which Andor does. The rebels get to work. And at the Galactic Antiquity store on Coruscant, Luthen waits to hear for a transmission. His assistant tells him to turn it off, and Rail confines that he is worried about the mission. So there's a little scene right at the beginning of this section where Cyril's sitting alone in his room. And I want you to read two, I want to read to you two notes that I have about this, the bit where Cyril's sitting in his room. I want to read them verbatim as I wrote them in my notes. Okay. Cyril has little clone trooper action figures. Wait, I have those. So if you look in the background of some of the shots, Cyril has like little clone trooper action figures on his desk. I am 99% sure those are actual action Revenge of the Sith action figures. And I know this because the one that's kneeling, I am 99% sure I have that figure. I mean, I guess it makes sense. Well, first of all, hilarious that you and Cyril have the same action figures. Let's just That definitely that says things about me that I don't want to talk about. Um, second part, I never thought about this, but... I guess something that's like a standard in our universe is just little green army men or whatever, like little cheap plastic army men. I just think it's funny that like possibly in Star Wars, they would have cheap little clone troopers because that was, you know, just something they had. Also, Hasbro, why have you not made that yet? And Cyril's, Cyril's like what, in his 20s? So he would have been a kid during the Clone Wars. So why wouldn't he collect little so they're toys? Probably, and, they're probably yeah. his old toys. Yeah, makes Which sense. Which, of course, would explain a lot about why he grew up to be a cop. If he spent all this time playing with his little army man, and was like, I want to do that. And then was Cyril Karn, so he's not getting into the Imperial military anytime soon. I, I just, that was a background detail that I thought was, if they're really blurry and we don't get a good shot of them, but I'm pretty sure those are like Revenge of the Sith era actual Star Wars action figures in the background. 
So fun fact, I actually cut that out of my little uh, summary uh, and I literally had like, cause it was, my summary was already super long anyway. And I cut that tiny little scene out because all I had written down was like, Cyril sits in his bed and dreams of Cassian on his holiday. Yeah. So, so Cyril's <laughs> staring at Cassian on the thing. We agree that's a little gay, right? It's a, it's a little, maybe a little bit. Maybe a it's little. It's a little bit gay. A little gay. Fellas, fellas, is it gay to sit alone in your bedroom and stare relentlessly at the face of another man? That you hate. That you hate, but you're also obsessed with. Because you're secretly attracted to them. Because you want to fuck him. The only real note I had for the, the seamless scheme is just marveling at how fucking dark this story is. Um, This is... This has to be the first mention. Oh, trigger warning. This has to be the first yeah, mention trigger, of... Trigger warning for for this section that's about to come up. Skip yeah. a minute ahead if um, discussions of suicide or any sort of self-harm make you uncomfortable. Skip ahead about a minute or two. This has to be the first time that suicide is mentioned in Star Wars that I can think of. Like, uh, It does not get mentioned a lot. Or at least is, in this capacity. like In this capacity. No, this is straight up a guy killed himself. Right. And, yeah, it's, it's and really it wasn't heavy. like a it wasn't like a heroic sacrifice. It no. wasn't like a giving himself up for the cause. It wasn't a going down with his ship kind of thing. No, this is like a guy was driven to desperation by the Empire and took his own life. And it's it's such a bleak moment to demonstrate just how much the imperial system affects the people that get trampled under it to where here's someone who felt like operating under the system they had no hope for recourse they had no hope for reconciliation they had no hope to rebuild and opted to just end it there which is for skeen who got left behind is such a horrifying thing like i was in shock when this this story was told i was like holy shit like jesus on a semi lighter note like this yeah, is the most adult series <laughs> um i just think i just find it interesting that uh they keep throwing these adult things at us uh in this show oh, yeah. so first it was uh people in star wars have sex then it was uh the word shit and then it was uh, well, no because no, it's brothels failing oh, broth- i'm sorry you're right they start with brothels and this entire section like this is this is like i hesitate to say that i mean this show is is probably for older kids like you could not let a young kid watch this i'm surprised that they don't have like a a, like a maybe like a 14 plus rating or something like that just like you know how sometimes yeah video games or something they'll be like oh it's like a thing you know i just feel like with this it needs a little bit of a warning yeah like revenge of the sith was like the first they had to put a warning in front of obi-wan kenobi but most of obi-wan kenobi was still relatively light this show has been dealing with some really heavy stuff like it's it's difficult as an adult to look at and process it luthan in his gallery right at the very end i i like this small scene because uh luthan who has had his hands in everything is now on the outs there is nothing he can do it is driving him insane and remember cassian talks about like the fear of the night before here we see it playing out in Luthien, where he's just obsessively checking his radio. And Clea, who, side note, seems to be the one actually in charge here, because she's girl-bossing it up. Yeah, I like how she's like, um, you know, we still are 
running a fake business here. So we need you to like kind of do something. You I can't need just... you to do the fake business. <laughs> well, she correctly identifies like he's afraid and she's like obsessing about this. It's just going to eat you up. We're going to have you go do something else to take your mind off it. I really like that. This is a moment of vulnerability for Luthen too, to where He's now set everything in motion, but this is the sacrifice he makes. He has to trust in Vel and Cassian. And we're going to see if his trust is correctly placed next episode. Uh, written by Dan Gilroy, uh, directed by Susanna White, who is absolutely killing it. Uh, yep, so Bradley, I guess this is that current theme of just every three episodes is just the same people each time. Yep, they're just, it's in three episode chunks, so... Bradley, you want to give us your final thoughts? Final thoughts. Uh, you know, like we said, this was the hump episode, so it did suffer slightly. Overall, I think it is setting up what will be a really cool kind of finale-esque to this episode arcs. Um, I'm excited to see this thing. they Because th- I felt like they really stretched this one out a little bit um, in the wrong places. I felt like we could have gotten more scenes with maybe Mon Mothma and more scenes with Luthen or... I think all the other stuff was Cyril, like that stuff to me and uh, Deidre, like all that stuff was more interesting to me than what the rebels were doing. Cause I feel like every time they went back to the rebels, they're sitting around, they're talking, they're sitting around, they're talking, which is building character. But I wanted more Deidre. I wanted more Cyril. Like, I don't know why I just, I just like them more as characters um, because especially since those characters are going to stay with us in this journey versus the rebel characters in this episode and the one before who i think you know next week will theoretically be their last episode so versus deidre and cyril who will continuously show up to thwart you know cassian as his adventures continue um but that's why i i, I want to focus more on the characters that we're going to keep being with I, I i love that they're giving us backstories to all these little characters but i need them to realize that we like our girl bosses and our gay twinks we don't want to know too much about <laughs> the other characters i'm just well, kidding that we do but um i just i i felt like those other characters that we really care about got a little shafted this episode. So that was kind of what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I would I would agree to that to a certain extent. I, I feel like they they've been stretching themselves a little thin because it, it sort of feels like that they're they're wanting to spend a lot of time on Aldani, but they know that we're we get bored if they spend too much time with the rebels sitting around. So we have to interject to do a scene of Deidre. We have to interject to do a scene of Mon Mothma. It feels like the A story is very heavy and the B and C plots of this arc are very light. And it feels like that balance really isn't there where you have a a good balance between your A, B, and C plots. Uh, My final thought is that you know, yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat. It's very much a middle episode. Um, it was good. There was a lot to dig into, but we're maneuvering the characters. Like I said at the top of the episode, we're maneuvering the characters into position. All hell is going to break loose next episode. This is a lot of, we met the characters last episode. We're maneuvering them this episode. And so next episode, every, all hell is going to absolutely break loose. So I left this episode excited for next week. But not because this was a particularly strong episode. It's because it teased a particularly strong episode upcoming. Alrighty, well, that's going to be it for us for this week. Uh, We are going to try not to record while Luau is going in Bradley's hotel next week. I do want to state again that if you have not checked it out for Light and Dice, 
the High Republic Era TTRPG podcast that I am on, DM'd by Chris from Dark Side Divas with Hope from J Guys and Jedi, Jess from Repulse Pod Race, and our friends Colton and Nathan. That is out now on your wherever you get your podcasts. Go and listen to For Light and Dice. Chris has put in sound effects. We have music. Uh, a gentleman named Gushkov, I think, did entire soundtrack concept soundtracks for the High Republic books. We got Gushkov's permission to use those soundtracks as the backing soundtracks for the Light and Dice campaign. So oh, it sounds, sounds awesome. awesome. It sounds awesome. It's a lot of fun. It's super funny. It's a great light group. Um, so definitely go and give that a listen. Uh, Bradley, go ahead and run our regular social in the AI voice so that I can get to bed because good lord, being on the wrong end of this time zone is killing me. Thank you for listening to Gold Squadron Gaze. Did Charles fuck something up? Send us a message at goldsquadrongaze at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at Gold Squad Gaze. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Gold Squadron Gaze. Subscribe to us on YouTube at Gold Squadron Gaze, where we post the podcast as well as exclusive content. Please join us next week and every week for more of Gold Squadron Gaze. That's what a yellow light means, by the way, Los Angeles drivers. Uh, break, because the light's about to turn red. And if you keep going, you're going to get hit by another car. Throwing that out there.